0: So, oh, with all that being said, I wanna go back thinking about Brussels for a second. Um, you know, like I said, I served as a teaching pastor in Brussels for three years and my wife and I were talking last night about how, um, about what time of year that we're gonna miss being in Belgium the most. We've been back for about a year and a half. So we're thinking, man, when, when do I miss Belgium the most? And I said, you know what I think is, this time of year. November, December in Belgium, in Brussels is so incredible. I miss it so much. I get very the past couple Novembers and Decembers, I've been very nostalgic for Belgium, more, more, than, more than normal. And so uh, if anyone from Brussels is watching right now, you might be thinking, "I'm crazy, because the weather in Brussels at this time of year is about like it was this past week here, really gloomy, cloudy, rainy. And you know, in Belgium, it rains, uh, it, 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 it rains it doesn't rain hard enough to keep you from going outside, but it rains just hard enough to ruin your day, right? You know, that, that, that kind of rain. And so, uh, but man, I love this time of year in Brussels because we're because starting in early November, they start decorating the whole city for Christmas. Every part of the city begins to be decorated for Christmas. They don't have that ridiculous, ridiculous rule uh, about uh, not, of course, they don't have Thanksgiving. So about not decorating for Christmas till after Thanksgiving, Sorry if that feels like shots fired to anyone. The Raven house. Christmas begins November one, and that's how it is in Brussels. Right? You start seeing the lights go up. So as you walk around the city, you're walking down these streets, all these winding city European city streets. You'll see uh, beautiful Christmas trees everywhere, light posts decorated, lights you know hanging hanging above you. Um, you'll see uh, little statues all around the city dressed up like Saint Nicholas. Uh, you, you'll see the the closer you get to downtown, you'll see this amazing Christmas market. If you have a chance to go to Western Europe, specifically Brussels, around Christmas time, you should do it because the Christmas market is incredible. It's these wooden booths just lining all around the city. You're standing shoulder to shoulder with people, you know, trying to get 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 to these booths. And the booths have everything, right? You And I'm, I'm talking hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these things. I mean, you can go find like the most amazing desserts that you've ever had. And then you can find like uh, this thing called hot wine. I was skeptical, it's a hot wine. I was skeptical of it, but it's like this hot spiced wine incredible, right? Anyone in Brussels watching, go to the Christmas market tonight, pour one out for me. <laughs> I miss that hot wine there. So it's the hot wine's the perfect thing to have with you as you're getting uh, uh, lightly rained on the whole time you're out. Uh, but then you can go to booths finding everything from little arts and crafts to like fine leather goods. It's so much fun to go down to the Christmas market. And so you'll go down to the Christmas market and you'll weave your way until you get to the city center. And in the center of the city is uh, is Grand Place. If you've been to Belgium, you remember Grand Place. It is unforgettable. It is, it is like the big town square. It's so beautiful. If you Google Brussels on Google images, it's just gonna be a bunch of pictures of Grand Place. And in Grand Place, these beautiful, ornate, illustrious buildings are all lit up red and green and everything. And then they have this huge, enormous Christmas tree right there in the middle of it, cut down from a forest in Belgium, beautifully decorated. And then right beside the tree, you have a full-size nativity scene. Now this nativity scene is like all out. Now it's not real people or actors, it's like fake, but they go all out. Like you'll see life sized shepherds there with their sheep. You'll go around, you'll see the wise men there, although the wise men weren't actually, probably weren't actually there when Jesus was born. But you see the wise men there, you'll see, you know, obviously the stable, the barn animals. You'll see Joseph just standing tall, resolute, noble, you'll see Mary looking lovingly into the manger. You know how the, like the Catholic painting stuff are where she's like stooping over and looking all weird and why would anyone ever stand like that? Only one thing's missing from this scene, Jesus. You go, you go, where's Jesus? There's nothing in the manger. Well, I found out that Belgium has this quirky little tradition where every year when they set up the nativity scene, someone comes and steals Jesus. It's the quirky little traditions that make Belgium such a special place. I don't know if it's one guy. I don't know if it's, if it's a team of people. I don't know who, who does it. I don't know if somewhere in Belgium, there's like an apartment building filled with just years worth of little baby Jesus's from this nativity set, but he's nowhere to be found. I remember thinking one year saying, man, I guess, I guess the Belgians know that there, were no, there was no room for Jesus in the inn, but I guess to them, there's no room for him in the manger either. Right? Jesus is nowhere to be found. But this actually brings me to uh, one of the most familiar and amazing parts of the Christmas story. Uh, the fact that the king and ruler of the universe, the king that we talked about in Revelation, the reigning king, the king we talked about in Colossians, the preeminent one who rules over all things, the creator, the sustainer, the savior of the entire universe, did not enter into his creation. By way of a plush pillow in a palace, rather he entered his creation by way of a, low, a lowly, smelly, gross manger. Now, when we look at the at, at, at the nativity scene, maybe you have some in your house. Maybe you know we, we, many of us are familiar with this image. Having Jesus in a manger might feel like a little cute aspect of the story, like a little quirky fact about the birth of Jesus, but otherwise an insignificant detail. But the manger was actually an essential part of the message that God was trying to communicate, that God was communicating through sending his son to be born into this world. So today, here's what I want here, here's, here's to do. I want us to take another look at the old familiar story, the story that many of us have heard hundreds of times, dozens of times. You know, on, on, on a morning like this one, it can feel, a series like this, around this time of the year, it can feel like, oh man, I've heard these sermons a million times. There's not anything you could tell me about the birth of Jesus I've not already heard. And maybe that's true. But oftentimes it's the most familiar stories that are the most important, right? The ones that are worth telling over and over and over again. So let's go back. Let's look again at this familiar story and marvel at the message God is sending through the manger of the Lord Jesus. So uh, take out your Bibles, open them up with me to Luke chapter two. And while you're flipping there, uh, or if you don't have your Bible, we will have it on the screen here. While you're flipping there, why don't you go ahead and stand with me as we read God's word. So, When I finish reading this passage, I'm going to say, this is the word of the Lord. And if you believe that to be true, you respond by saying, thanks be to God. All right, hear the word of the Lord. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This is the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee from the town of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there is no place for them in the inn. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Many of us have our Christmas decorations up at home. I know for us, uh, the most important decoration, probably for you too, is the Christmas tree. Uh, The Christmas trees are the first thing that goes up, kind of the center of all Christmas decorations. I know for my family, we put up the tree. It was so much work getting the tree up that we didn't put any other decorations up for like a week, right? But that's the most important one. It's like the centerpiece of our Christmas decorations. But the centerpiece of Luke's story, Luke's account of the birth of Christ is not a beautiful tree twinkling, emitting this beautiful little flutter of lights. Rather, the centerpiece of Luke's account of Christ's birth is a manger holding the light of the world. In fact, Luke is the only gospel writer to actually mention the manger and he uses it three times in his narrative. Matthew also gives an account of Christ's birth, but Matthew doesn't talk about the manger. Luke does, and he repeats it several times. So obviously, clearly Luke is trying to tell us something about the manger. He sees the manger as a significant part of the story, not just a little insignificant detail. He sees the manger as something that's going to communicate to us, something very important about the one it is holding. So what does Luke want to show us this morning? Well, I want us us to see a few things that I think the manger communicates to us or that Luke is trying to communicate to us through the manger. And the first thing that I want us to see is that the manger is not a mistake. The manger is not a mistake. Ask yourself, why was there no room in the inn? for Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus? Did Joseph just forget to go on Hotels.com and book his stay before the big trip? Was there just a big convention in Bethlehem so all, all the inns were booked up? Would God the Father have preferred if the mother of his son and his son would enter into the world in a nice, clean room with press sheets and a nice little nice little basin for Jesus to be to be washed in is that what god the father would have preferred and that the the stable the manger was just the next best option given the circumstances is this how we should understand this not at all not at all Luke tells us that there is a large census handed down all the way from Caesar in Rome that that meant that all the men had to go back to their place of origin, the origin of their families to be registered. So although Joseph had settled in Nazareth, he had to travel about a hundred miles south to the small mountain village of Bethlehem. And as it happened, well, and, and this is because he came from the lineage of David. You read about in the Old Testament, King David was was from Bethlehem. So this is where Joseph had to travel to be registered for the census. Now, as it happened, this census, this trip coincided with the very end of Mary's pregnancy. Now, Luke doesn't tell us why Mary joined Joseph. It, didn't, it doesn't seem like she had to join him. It didn't seem like Mary was going to be registered, but Joseph was, but Mary came along with him. So we can speculate as to why. Probably the most likely reason, at least I would think would be that She's about to have the baby. And fellas, I want you to think, if you knew that your fiance was about to give birth to the son of God, you might feel a little, bit, a little pressure around the, time, around the time that she's gonna give birth. It might be hard for you to say, I'm gonna leave you out of my sight for a few weeks. No, he's like, Mary, listen, I know this is not good, but we gotta load up. We, I, I, I gotta get you on that donkey and we have got to travel all the way to Bethlehem. Now, um. You can imagine that this was not an easy trip for Mary. You think about this very pregnant teenage girl and her village carpenter husband traveling a hundred miles, just under a hundred miles through dusty, arid desert days and cold desert nights. Right, this was not the ideal baby moon, Right? Joseph could not try to pass this off. Like, hey, listen, we're gonna take a little trip before Jesus is born. We're gonna take the scenic route. It's gonna be this beautiful, illustrious trip through the countryside of Judea and Galilee. No, this was not a fun trip. Poor Mary's on the back of a donkey making this this trip. They're gonna struggle their way into Bethlehem. And when they get to Bethlehem, there's gonna be no room for them in the inn. No bed for Mary to lay her head after the hard trip. No hot shower or bath to wash the filth of the trail off of them. And maybe most tragically, no mother's hand for Mary to hold as she goes in to deliver Jesus. You know, um, my wife and I have two kids. One child was born here in America, in our home, our, our home here in Middle Tennessee. One child was born across the ocean in Brussels. I can tell you from from going walking through this with my wife, having your mother there to hold your hand as you go through that makes a big difference. But Mary didn't have that. All Mary had was a a dirt floor, a dirt floor and a barn for the blessed mother of our Lord. And then we're told this in verse six. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Now, given the situation, this might feel like cruel fate or bad luck, right? But Luke wants us to see something more that's happening in this story. This time came for her to give birth because this time was set before time. I mean, imagine Mary and Joseph. Imagine Joseph hearing this decree that he has to travel to Bethlehem right at the same time that his wife's about to give birth. He's probably thinking, now of all time, now we have to go to Bethlehem? And then while they're there, imagine what Mary's saying too, by the way. And then while they're there, imagine when Mary says, hey, I think my water just broke. And they're probably thinking, now you couldn't have made it back. I know it's a a big ask, baby, but come on, it would be so much easier to do this back where our family is, back back where everybody is. Now feels like the worst possible time for this. But this time was set before time. This is the exact time Time the exact situation that God planned for His Son to enter into the world. See, Mary and Joseph were not uh, in a barn or in a little cave or grotto, wherever it was. They weren't there because of issues with seating uh, with uh, with uh, rooming capacity. They weren't in Bethlehem simply because of a census. They were where they were because God moved an empire to bring his son from the splendor of heaven to the lowliness of the manger. To bring his son from the throne to the earth in the exact way that he said he would do it. Listen to what the Lord said through the prophet Micah hundreds of years prior. Micah chapter five, verse two. And you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Brothers and sisters, history does not hinge upon the edicts of presidents, parliaments, or powerful institutions. History flows forth out of the decrees and providence of the Lord God. And if God said that his Christ would be born in Bethlehem, then nothing would stop what he said from coming to pass. He would, the Bible says that he directs the hearts of kings like a river in his hand, directing them wherever it, it, it pleases him to take them. Even rebellious kings, even rebellious congresses, even wicked presidents, even rulers who attempt to act to thwart God's plan, act against him, yet unbeknownst to them are are pawns in his hand. And they are incapable of acting in any way that is out of sync with God's plan. Even their rebellion works to bring forth God's plan for the world. History flows out from the decrees of God, not from the edicts of powerful people. You know, so many things happen in our lives that feel random, that feel unexplainable, that feel like just chance or coincidence. But there is not one molecule, brothers and sisters, there is not one molecule in this entire universe that moves or exists outside of God's sovereign plan. Nothing escapes his sovereignty. Nothing escapes his providence. And this is good news for us, because this means that if God can move the most powerful government, the most powerful world power of that day, to accomplish his purposes, to bring his son to be born in the exact spot and the exact circumstances that he planned for his son to be born, then what would stop God from moving heaven and earth to accomplish his purposes in your life, in my life, in the life of this church? See, nothing that happens to you happens to you by chance. Nothing that happens to you is random or arbitrary. And as strange, as confusing, as mystifying as our lives may feel at times, God is not surprised by anything that happens to us, nor is he phased by any trial or circumstance that arises against us. Listen, nothing happens to you that makes God say, all right, we gotta figure out another plan. You can't do something that makes God say, I had a plan for you and you've messed it up. Now I got to figure out something else to do for you. Everything that happens to us, good or bad, all happen in accordance with the counsel of God's wisdom and providence. And all things are working to produce something in us. If nothing is random in our lives, that means that all things that happen to us have purpose. I love how John Piper, great Bible teacher, says, says this. He says, God is always doing 10,000 things in your life and you might be aware of three of them. God is always doing 10,000 things in your life and you might be aware of three of them. God is working things in your life right now. He's working things in this church right now and we might not see the results of those things for decades. You might not see the results of God's working in you for decades. God is planting seeds in your life, in this church right now. And we might not see growth from those seeds for years. But what we know is that God sees all things. He knows all things and in his wisdom, in his goodness, and in his faithfulness, he works all things for our good and for his glory. And Christian, I know you've heard us say that here. God works all things for our good and his glory, but I want you to understand something. As a Christian, our good and his glory are inextricable. God in his love has ordained that your greatest good And his greatest glory are not different things. God will always act for his greatest glory. And the good news for Christians is to know that that means he will always act for our greatest good as well. The manger reminds us of this. Nothing is random. Nothing that happens to us is random. The manger, as strange as it may appear to us, was not a mistake. So if God intended for his son to be born and laid in a manger, then the next question, the most logical question for us to ask next would be, why? Why here? Why this circumstance? Well, I want us to to see, uh, this this leads us to the next thing that I want us to see, which is that the manger is a sign. The manger is a sign. God is communicating something to us by sending his son to be born by way of a manger. Look uh, uh, again with me at verse 7. It says, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. So after Mary birthed the son of God into the world that he created, if you remember from Colossians, Jesus came into the world that he created, Mary wrapped him in swaddling cloths. If you you haven't had children, if you haven't been around babies, uh, we still swaddle babies today. We have little swaddle blankets. And basically what these are, they're like little straight jackets. For infants, right? My wife was, or I guess is, the best swaddler ever. Like she's like mastered the swaddle. Like you'd think that she like worked at Chipotle for years wrapping burritos, right? She is a master swaddler. I don't even try. My swaddles look ridiculous. And so uh, I, I watch her, but with my oldest son, maybe you're, maybe if your children were, were, were like mine, any of your kids were like my son, my son David Morgan would, would tie that thing and get him real tight in there. But he's like baby Houdini, right? He's always gonna get, he's gonna figure out a way to get his arms out of there, right? Maybe your kids are like that. But now typically, the more valuable the cloth, the more noble the child, right? The, the, the wealthy, the rich, the noble children got valuable cloth. So what kind of swaddling cloth would suit the Lord Jesus Christ? I'll tell you, the finest there is. Silk, soft, lush cloth, interwoven with, with, with pure gold and precious silver. That's what he deserved, but is that what he got? No. The Lord Jesus was wrapped in common cloth, just like any other poor child in that day. However, unlike poor children, Jesus was wrapped in swaddling cloths and then put in a gross manger. I know in our nativity scenes, the manger looks nice and clean. It probably wasn't very clean. He's wrapped up and set in a, in a gross feeding trough for animals, but the manger was significant. Listen, notice what happens in just a few verses. Uh, we're gonna talk about this Aspect of the story specifically, you know, next week and 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 on Christmas Eve. But I want to point out one detail here in just a few verses. An angel of the Lord is going to come down, and he's going to appear to a group of shepherds keeping watch over their flocks by night. And he's going to tell them that the Messiah, the Savior, is finally here. Now, I want I want to point out one one detail about what the angel says. Look with me at verse ten. <clears throat> And the angel said to them, fear not for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. So the angel says, the advent of Christ has come. The Messiah is here. And he knew that the shepherds were gonna wanna go see him. So the angel says, look, I know you're gonna wanna go see him. So I'm gonna give you a sign. I'm gonna give you a sign. Let's, let's, let's see what the sign is. Let's uh, look at verse 12. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. So you'll know you found the Christ child when you see a child wrapped in swaddling cloths and laying in a manger. So what's the sign here? What's the sign? Well, it can't be the swaddling cloths. Surely Jesus wasn't the only kid born in Bethlehem that day. And even if he was, he certainly wasn't the only infant in Bethlehem. I mean, these shepherds could have been going door to door looking for and and finding all sorts of babies wrapped up in swaddles. So what's the sign? The manger. Jesus was the only baby in swaddling cloths and laying in a manger. The manger was the sign that they were looking for. But okay, so. If the manger is the sign, then what do signs do? Why give this as a sign? Well, signs point us to something. They point us where we need to go. They tell us something we need, to go, we need to know. Signs demand a response from us. And so we've seen that the manger was not a mistake, not just a coincidence, not random. The manger was a sign, but signs point to something. So what is the manger pointing to? Well, we're going to see as we, as we move along, the manger is a message. The manger has a message, something that the sign was pointing toward. Now, before we go on in that, I wanna point out something about God to you. This is something very important for us as believers to know about God, about how he works, about, about who he is. And this should fuel our worship of him, by the way. It's important for us to know That God does not respond to things. Do you follow me? God does not respond to things. Another way to say this would be circumstances do not change him. Nothing happens that causes a change in God. Now you might say, well, this is confusing because sometimes when I read my Bible, it seems like a circumstance changes God. It seems like God has responded to something. Why would that be? How can you say that God doesn't respond to things, circumstances don't change him. And yet when I read the Bible, sometimes it it, it appears that way. Well, um, how can we as finite, mortal, weak humans, I mean, most of us don't even live a hundred years How can we even begin to comprehend the being, the actions, the manner of the eternal, triune, omniscient God? How can we even begin to understand him? We can't. So when when God chooses to sort of let us in, to to even begin to understand what he has done or why he's done something, he has to speak to us in terms that make sense to us. It would be like if a three-year-old boy wanted to understand why his father made a decision. Well, how could he? How could a three-year-old child even begin to grasp the will of his father, the the years of accumulated wisdom that his father has, the decision-making process of his father, the the pros and cons weighing of his father, the judgment of his father? How could a three-year-old even begin to understand that? He can't, and what, but what do three-year-olds do anyway? Hey, dad, why'd you do that? Why are we doing this? And so if the father is going to explain himself to his three-year-old, what does he have to do? He has to explain it in terms that make sense to a three-year-old. Well, I don't mean any offense to any of us in this room, but that's how God speaks to us. God can't talk to us in ways that, that truly reveal who he is because we can't understand it. He stoops down to explain himself to us in ways that make sense to us. So although it may appear in scripture that God might respond to something, what we know is God does not change. Circumstances cannot change him. There is no shadow of turning with him. So God does not react to things, nor is he passive. passive merely allowing things to happen. Everything God does, he is wholly active. And everything that comes to pass, comes to pass because it was the intention of God for it to pass. Everything God does is intentional and everything he does has been the plan from the beginning. Think about when man sinned, when Adam and Eve sinned. God didn't have to quickly say, all right, I made this perfect garden. I made these perfect people. And now they've sinned. All right, let, let's, let's call the divine council together and figure out what we're gonna do. No. He didn't have to come up with a plan of redemption. Redemption was always the plan. Even before the fall, redemption was always the plan. How do we know that it was always the plan? Because it's what happened. If it wasn't the plan, it wouldn't have happened. So before there was a tree in the midst of the garden, where humanity would fall, there was a cross in the mind of our God where humanity would be redeemed. Before Adam came and sinned and all of humanity fell with him, God knew that he would send his son into the world to be perfect and righteous and to make right the wrong of Adam so that all who put their faith in him could be restored, saved, redeemed. And he knew that this Savior that he was going to send from the beginning, it was always a plan, would be born in Bethlehem and laid in a manger. So if God does all things intentionally, if all things have purpose with him, he's not just merely reacting or letting things happen. All things have purpose. What is the intention of the manger? What's God intending to show us here? Well, interestingly, let's think, what does the word manger mean? Well, we know it's a feeding trough for animals, but where do we get the word manger? Well, the manger comes from a Latin word. It means to eat or to chew. As a matter of fact, Life Point, Brussels, one of the languages we speak at that church is French. And in French, manger means to eat. If you saw manger written down, you would see the word manger. It's spelled the exact same way. It means to eat or to chew. So what is this message? What is God intending to show us by laying his son in a manger? He's intending to show us but the Son of God did not come into this world to be polished and pampered. He came to this world to identify with the lowly. He came to be the bread of life, laid in a place where creation comes to eat. Jesus Christ would condescend to the lowest point possible, even from the moment of his birth, so that he could show us that all people have access to him. He was laid in a place where both the lowly shepherds and the rich, noble, wise men of the East could come and behold him and worship him. He came to satisfy the deepest longings of the hearts of men. That's true 2,000 years ago. It's true today. I love what St. Augustine said, writing centuries and centuries ago. St. Augustine prayed, prayed a prayer to God. In the prayer, he said, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Isn't that true, Christian? Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in Christ So many people, maybe some of so many people in this room, but so many people in our world, in our neighborhoods, in our homes are hungering for those things that will not satisfy them. They don't see the bread of life laid in a manger and offered to them. They're looking to all other types of things. Maybe maybe they're looking at, something for Christmas, right? Maybe they want a specific special gift. I know Matt mentioned last week about the, the dad who shows up in the, in, the, in the driveway with the Lexus, right? Those random families that I swear don't exist. <laughs> Maybe you're hoping for that. Maybe it's something you hope you get. Maybe a new little toy. Maybe you're a kid and you're hoping that your parents will get you the, 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 the toy, the iPhone, the gadget, the thing that's gonna, that's gonna be it for you, that's gonna fill that longing in your heart. Maybe you're longing for something good. Maybe you say, man, if I could just have one year where my family gets together, we all sit around a table and we don't fight. We don't bicker and complain at each other. That'll be the thing for me. That'll fill that void in me. My problem is a family problem and I need that fixed. Maybe if my estranged child would just come home, spend Christmas with us, ring in the new year with us, that'll be it, That'll, that'll fill me up. It'll be the game changer in my life. Maybe it's something sinful. I have this website or these websites I go to often because man, I'm, I'm, I'm looking for something there. I'm looking, hopefully maybe one day it'll really just kind of keep me filled up or I feel, it fills me up, I feel empty and I have to keep going back. I'm like an addict. Maybe I have, maybe I have that person. My, my spouse is not really cutting it for me. So I either need to terminate this thing and and, and go, go on to the next person, or maybe I'm gonna keep my spouse, keep my family together, but I'm gonna have my little side thing going on over here. My little text thread, my little email thread, my little person at work, because I feel empty and I need something to fill me up. So many people are hungering for those things that will not satisfy them. But to all of us, no matter who we are, the message of the manger stands Come, come you who are hungry. Come with no money. Come with no gifts. Come with no reservation. Come with no righteousness. Come and feast upon the bread of life that will fill your deepest longings, that will give you what you're seeking for in all the wrong places, that will make you whole, The way God designed you to be whole, come and see the king of all laid in a manger and come and eat. Listen to Philippians 2, tell us the humility of the Lord Jesus in coming to the earth. Philippians 2, 6 through 8, speaking of of the Lord, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus came in humility. He condescended to the lowest point imaginable. Why? Why go lower than even the poorest kids of his day had to go? Why go so low? to show us that there is no pretentiousness with Jesus. Jesus is not not too, well, he is too good for us, but he doesn't act like it, right? He's not sitting up with his chin up looking at us. No, you're not worthy of coming to me. Instead, he comes down to the lowest point, which should remind us that if we ever find ourselves at rock bottom, I can't imagine going any, any, any further down than this, Christ will meet you there. That was the way he came in. As low as you can go, no pretensions to him. There were no guards standing around his manger. There were no fences, no gates, no high walls, no moats. Jesus was born in this place again where the lowly shepherd and the rich wise men could come and behold him and worship him. In other words, Jesus Christ has given access to all people to come to him. Jesus does not exclude any group from being able to come and worship and come and know him, come and be satisfied by him. So when we think about the Christmas story, we can't overlook the manger. When you go look at your nativity scene at home today, if you have one up, look at the manger and think, Christ came and condescended to the lowest point to be close to me so that he can meet me where I am. And so that I could know that no social strata, no personality trait, no sin in me could move me so far beyond where he's willing to go that I'm out of his reach. The manger reminds us that Jesus Christ came to give access to all to come and know him. The manger holds a message for the world that Jesus came to be one of us so that we could be made one with him. Now, that baby in a manger didn't stay a baby. He grew up to become a man a man who would live a life of perfect obedience to the law of God, a man who never sinned, who lived a life that you and I could never even dream of living. And 33 years after being laid on that in that manger, he was placed, hung on a cross where he took upon himself all the sins of his people so that you, brother and sister, you, non-believer in the room, could be forgiven of your sins because Christ clothed himself with our sin and took the punishment, took the death that we deserved so that through faith in him, we could be clothed in his righteousness and perfection. So that through faith in Christ, when God the Father looks at you, he doesn't see all of your imperfection, all of your sin, all of your wickedness, all of your filthiness. He sees the perfection Goodness and holiness of his son, his perfect son, who before he was on the cross was laid in the manger. Many people come to church for different reasons uh, during this time of year. Maybe you're here because you're always here and you can't stay away from God's people. Amen, hallelujah. Maybe you're here for sentimental reasons. Hey, Christmas is just around the corner. Is what we do. We put up our Christmas tree, watch a Hallmark movie and we go to church. That's what we do. Maybe you're, maybe you're finally catching up on that New Year's resolution you made to come back to church, you're just getting in real late. Maybe your family dragged you here. Maybe you don't know why you're here. <laughs> maybe, you're here maybe you're here and you say, man, I've heard, I've heard a sermon like this one so many times. Oh, it's, it's boring to hear this over and over and over again. No matter who you are, no matter who you are, I pray, and this truly was my prayer before coming here, I pray that the message of the manger would grip your heart afresh today. That we would marvel at the humility and love and faithfulness of our Lord to come to this world and be near us, to stoop down low enough to be able to pick us up. You matter to Christ. Brother, sister, you matter. To Christ, You matter so much that he came to this world and wrapped himself in human flesh to pay for your sins himself so that you could be made right with God. You matter, you are precious to him. And for as wonderful as the manger is, we rejoice that that baby in a manger grew up to be a man, the God man <laughs> who lived a perfect life, died a substitutionary death resurrected in victory, and now extends his nail-pierced hands to all who would come to him, including you. If you wanna know what it means to follow Jesus, or if you wanna have a conversation with someone about your spiritual life, I wanna encourage you to text that number on the screen. Let us know, and someone wants to talk to you. Or you know what? You could even come back after church, come find us in in, in the connection area back there and talk to us. There's nothing we would love more than to talk to you about what it means to follow Jesus or help you in your relationship with him. Jesus Christ is the King of Kings. He's the Lord of Lords. He is our great God and Savior. And as we celebrate his birth, let's remember that he is today, not in the manger anymore, but ruling on the throne and yet still inviting all people to come and worship, come and be satisfied by him. Amen. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we worship you for sending your son Jesus to this world. He could have lived in opulence, in comfort. He could have been born into a palace, to a noble family. Of course, Christ is worthy of these things. And yet you had him born in a stable, placed in a manger. And you show us through this that your heart is for all people no matter who we are, to be able to come and behold you, the king of ages. Christ, thank you for your humility, your kindness to stoop down so low to pick us up from the dust. You are the king of glory. You are the one to whom all of us owe our allegiance. All heaven and earth will bow their knees before you because of what you've done. And so today, let the message of the manger move us in our hearts to worship Christ the Lord, supreme, reigning over all. To you, we give wisdom and honor, glory and power unto ages and ages forever. Amen.